But right now, we're going to read from Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that uh, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. Um, I'm the lead pastor here. It's really great to have you with us this morning as we move through the book of Galatians. Whether this is your first time in church or first time for a long time in a church community or whether you're here week in and week out, it's so good to be diving into the gospel of grace week after week. And as Jacob mentioned before, you will notice through this letter that the author Paul keeps returning to a similar theme. And if you've been with us a few weeks, you might be starting to think why. But I just want to give a moment to explain why it is that that's important. Last week, we watched a documentary on the Tam Luong Cave Rescue. Now, you may remember what that was or you may not. But to give you a bit of background about what it's about, in Thailand, there is a kind of, what do you call it, subterranean cave network that's about two or three kilometers underground. And tourists, locals kind of will go caving and sort of go in there as a bit of an adventure. You, take, you can only go in by torchlight. There's no natural light once you're actually in there. And it's kind of a bit of a, an adventure to get amongst. But uh, a couple of years ago, a coach took a young, a junior soccer team in there. So young teenage boys on a bit of a team bonding exercise. They're a bit more extreme over in Thailand. They actually do proper sort of team bonding exercises, ones that involve real danger. But as they went in there, the monsoon rains came over a month early. And so while they're in the cave, it actually flooded and they became trapped in there. Now, for, for those of you who hate the dark or tight spaces, you already maybe are feeling like you need to go into the fetal position. But this was like a, this was a serious situation. They were trapped in there and they didn't know how to get them out. But the, the rescue story is actually quite extraordinary. The Navy SEALs who were a part of the Thai Army did not have the necessary skills to do cave diving. They were expert divers, but cave diving is a unique type of diving. There is no natural light. You can barely see your hand in front of your face, even with a torchlight. You have to navigate these things with a compass because if you get lost, 
you can find yourself completely stuck or down a cave network that you can't get back out of. If your equipment, if you run out of oxygen, there is no easy escape. I can see the stress levels rising in some of you already as I describe this. But there was a few, a few men who were called in who were not military, they weren't trained rescue workers, but they were experienced cave divers. And cave diving seems to attract the type. And it was this, it was this kind of eccentric, very detail-oriented, emotionally detached. I'll put it out there, they were nerds. <laughs> but they were, they were perfectly calibrated for this kind of rescue. And they talk about it in, in the actual documentary. Because what you needed was someone who was extremely detail-oriented so that you wouldn't get distracted by the danger and everything else that you could be thinking about, but just focus on the task. And so what they would do before going in is they would go over and over their equipment. They'd go over and over the rescue plan as they were planning to extract these boys, and I'll explain a little bit more about that later on. But they go over and over this stuff for one very clear reason. Lives were at stake. And not just their lives, but 13 other lives. And so when lives are at stake, detail matters. And it's important to go over the same things. It's important to be clear about things. It's important to make sure you haven't missed anything. And in this letter of Galatians, Paul does go over the gospel again and again and again because he wants people to be clear about it because lives are at stake. Their own lives. The lives of others. And today we're going to go over some technical words like justification or regeneration or sanctification. Not because we want to sound smart, but we want to be clear about what the gospel is and what it isn't. Because here's the truth of it, that everyone here will die. And that, like going into a cave, is something that you must do on your own. And the gospel claims that there is only one way to be sure that there will be life on the other side, and it's to know Jesus. And so Paul wants you and I, God wants you and I to know and be clear about how it is that we might be right with God so that you won't go into death asking questions or half-guessing, but that you will know and can be assured of salvation. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's Word in Galatians, that He will be opening our hearts and minds to understand the depths of grace in the Gospel because there's one clear point that Paul wants to make here. It's that salvation is by grace from first to last from beginning to end, and everything in between. It's grace, 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 not works. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to live for trivial concerns and to be concerned about trivial things. We pray this morning that you would lift our hearts and minds to consider the realities of life and death and of the hope of the gospel in Jesus of the forgiveness of sin that we can find in Him, of the salvation and life eternal, and all that we might live with joy and love for others, just like Jesus did. And Father, we pray this for the sake of Your holy name. Amen. Well, this letter, this letter to the Galatians, that was written by Paul, but was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to be Holy Scripture, God's very Word, was written about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And at this point in history, the message of the gospel has blown up and it's gone out not from just Jerusalem, near where Jesus died, but it's gone out to the regions north and south. It's gone all the way around to Turkey and to Greece and even further almost to Rome at this point. And there is no other world, there is no other worldview or religion historically that has done this. This was not a state-sponsored worldview. 
This was a ground-up movement. People heard the message of Jesus. It changed their life. And as they heard it, they wanted to tell other people about it. They're like, look, this is where you can find life and forgiveness and find a real relationship with God. And so this movement is spread out. And Paul has planted churches in all these different areas, including areas where the majority of people are not Jewish and don't have a Jewish background. And he's brought the gospel to them, which is very simple. The gospel is this. We are sinners who cannot save ourselves. Jesus died in our place to take the penalty for our sin. And anyone who trusts in Jesus, that he really lived and died and rose again, can be set free from sin and death. That's the simple free message that he's been spreading around the known world at that time. But in the church in Galatia, which is in modern day Turkey, some other people have come in after Paul and they've said, yeah, yeah, it is about grace. All that stuff was really good. But you also have to keep a lot of these Jewish customs and traditions. That if you really want to be connected to God and be sure that you are saved, you do the grace stuff, sure, but then you move on to some of this stuff. You need to get some of these things done. Men need to be circumcised. You need to eat or not eat certain foods. There are certain ways and customs of doing things, and you have to do that as well. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. That is not the gospel. You can't mix anything with the gospel. You can't make a hybrid model. There is either the gospel or no gospel at all. And so he's writing to them to make this clear. And what he's writing to them about is a word that he uses, which is justification. And this is courtroom language. So to be justified in a courtroom is to be declared innocent or righteous, good. And Paul is going to talk here about the two ways that you can stand before a holy God who sees and knows all things and be declared righteous. There are two ways, but really in the end there's one way. And here he's going to outline what they are. Look at what he says in Galatians 3, 10 to 14. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says there are two ways to be justified before God. One is by works of the law. That is, you do everything that God commands and he will be able to say to you, you are righteous, good, innocent. Now to sum this up, when Jesus is asked a question about the law, we could go through all of the Old Testament. We don't have six or seven hours this morning to do that. So let's go to Jesus' summary of the whole law, which is everything that God commands in the Old Testament of the Bible. In Luke 10, a teacher comes up to test him. And in verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus to test him. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered this correctly. Do this, and you will live. How can you be right with God? Simple. The law is, love God more than anything, and love your neighbor like yourself. If you do that, you'll be declared righteous. Now, that seems like a fair ask, doesn't it? Most of us would agree, whether you're here and you have any kind of religious background or not, that if people lived by these commands, the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? 
If we loved God and loved our neighbor as ourselves, the world we live in would be completely different. Just imagine it. Imagine how different the workplace would be if everyone kept God's law. No more backstabbing, no more social ladders to climb, no more in-group or out-group, no more this is how you actually have a track to success, but this is the real track, no more deceit, there'd be no more self-consciousness because we would love God more than others' opinions of us, no more gossip or bullying or abuse, no more wars, no more broken families, no more loneliness and rejection. If we all kept God's commands, the world would be a better place. We can all agree on that. But the strange thing is, even though we know that that would be the case, none of us have done it. The reason the world is the way it is, is because we hear God's law and we don't follow it. We want to rule ourselves in our own lives and be our own little G gods. We don't want to be told what to do. And we don't love God with our own heart. And we don't love others as ourselves. No one has obeyed God's perfect law. That's what Paul is saying here. No one will be justified by works of the law. God's standard is perfect obedience to his law, and it's fair. The world would be better if we did it. The rejection to that might be, well, th this is the thing. This is why I don't believe in God. Because he's like a divine principle up there, just hands on hips, being like, I told you so. And he set his standards way too high, and no one can meet them, and it's completely unreasonable. But the truth is, even if you were to lower the standards... All of us in the end are lawbreakers. We are. Think about it this way. Have you kept all the laws even of this land of Australia? You may not have broken any major ones, but have you never jaywalked, never sped, never done anything you shouldn't do, never looked at, I've never uh, uh, purchased or downloaded pirated, you can't purchase pirated material, why would I say that? Never, never listened to or watched anything that was pirated? And you're like, well, yeah, sure, but like, Kind of everyone does that, and the police don't really care anyway. It's not that big a deal. But what if you lowered it to your own workplace standards? Have you kept those absolutely perfectly? Even growing up, your parents' standards. You're like, yeah, but you don't know my workplace, my parents, how unreasonable they were, and all of that may be true. So let's drop it down to the fairest possible standards and the fairest possible law that you could hold yourself to, your own laws. What you believe is right and wrong. Is there anyone here who could honestly say they've even kept their own law? Never done something, hurt someone, swore you'd never do it again, and then you did. If we're honest, it doesn't matter what the standard is or what level it's at. We are all lawbreakers. And that's why Paul says no one will be justified by works of the law before God. No one will be able to stand before God and say, declare me righteous because I have lived perfectly. But the beauty of the gospel is that there is another way to be right before God. Paul says that way is closed. The way of works is done. It's finished. No one is going to make it there. So God, in his mercy, made a way to be right with him. That is, to be righteous by faith. Look what he says in Galatians 10 to 11. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the, all the things written in the book of the law to do them. But it is evident that no one will be justified by works of the law. And he goes on to say in 11 to 14, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. There is now a second way to be right with God because of Jesus. He, in dying on the cross, takes on the curse of sin for us so that we get his righteousness, his perfect life credited to us and he gets our sin credited to him and face the punishment for us. And this is what what theologians would call passive righteousness. That is, being declared right before God based on nothing that you have done. It is a rescue in which you are entirely passive. Let me return now to the story of the cave rescue in Thailand. The detail I left out about how they were going to rescue these kids was they were, having, they were going to have to get them through two kilometers of dark water underground in order to get them to safety. The problem was, on day two of the rescue, only about, say, two, maybe it was 200 meters into the cave in the first kind of um, area, they discovered some grown men who had got stuck there who were trying to pump out water. And what they did was to put a mask on them to try and get them just, it was just a 30 second dive to safety. But they're saying what happened was every time they put the mask on them, they'd bring the men through, the men would panic because the water was so dark and they'd start scrambling for the surface and trying to get air. And it was an effort just to get these grown men through 30 seconds of diving. And so they knew that in order to get these kids out, they would have no chance of getting them through conscious. So one of the divers, who was an anaesthetist, came up with the idea, it wasn't actually his idea, that what they would do is anaesthetize the kids, put them in diving equipment, and then bring them through to safety. And they rescued every single one of them by those means. There could not be a more passive way of being rescued, is there? For those kids, what they had to do was to look at these men and say, I trust you. I'm about to go unconscious, and I trust that you're going to be able to take me through two kilometers of dark water and narrow caverns to safety. I will contribute nothing to this except a limp body, and I will trust my entire life to you. That is what faith in Christ is. I contribute nothing to my salvation. I lean all upon Jesus. I trust you, Jesus, that you have done enough. You've done everything that is necessary that I might be saved and brought through death safely. This is passive righteousness. This is righteousness by faith. This is why Paul is so concerned for the Galatian church. He's saying, you can't add anything to this. Otherwise, it's not the gospel. If you rely on yourself, you rely on yourself entirely and you will not make it. There is only one way to be saved, to lean only upon Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer whose life was transformed by this specific book, Galatians, said this, There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. There is no confidence in our own salvation by our own work, but only in what Christ has achieved and won on our behalf. And so Paul goes on to argue, it's not just at the beginning. It's not just by, at the start of your faith that it's by grace, but actually it continues by grace. It goes even deeper. Look at what he says in Galatians 3, 5 to 9. It says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of the faith who are sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul says, even before Jesus came along, no one was justified by their own works. And so he picks for the Jewish people team captain, Abraham. He is top of the pops. He's the number one person they look to, the patriarch. And he says to him, look, even Abraham was not justified by what he did. And he quotes scripture to them, Genesis. He says to them, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is, he trusted God and God declared him righteous. Not because of what he had done, but simply because he trusted God. So these people who are coming into the Galatian church are saying, look, the long-standing tradition of the people of God is you do stuff and then God will approve you. And Paul is saying, no, that's not, that was never the case. That the way that anyone of God's people in the Old Testament was right before God was not because they kept God's law perfectly, but because they trusted that somewhere down the line God would deal with their sin. It's almost as though God was writing blank checks in the Old Testament and they thought that one day he's going to have to cash them. And it's only now, as Jesus comes and dies for sin, the, the people of God realize how it is that God had always planned to deal with their sin. It wasn't the case that this is some kind of new theology. Paul is saying, no, God's people have always lived by faith. And now we see that it's Christ who has won our righteousness for us. But you might be tempted to say here, well, that's right, it is by faith, but at least I can sort of take credit for that. I made a good decision to put my faith in Jesus where other people have made the bad decision not to. But Paul won't even have that. Look what he says in Galatians 1-5 to at the beginning of this section. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul says, Did you receive the Spirit of God by doing good works or by hearing with faith? And then notice what he says. He says, Having begun by the Spirit. That is, having first put your faith in Christ is not something you can take credit for, but a work that God had to do in you by his Holy Spirit. This is the biblical teaching of regeneration. That God had made a way to be right with him through Jesus, but the truth is none of us on our own would have accepted it. You might have heard I've used this before to explain the example, but if you maybe grew up going to church, you may have heard someone illustrate grace in this way. They say it's kind of like this, you are out to sea, swimming in open water. I'm tapping on lots of people's phobias over this talk, right? But you're in, this, you're in the sea, open water, no sight of land, and no chance of rescue. A rescue chopper comes out, someone reaches down and puts their hand out to you, and faith is just doing that last bit of putting your hand up to be rescued. It's not really a work because it's such a tiny thing, but in the end, it, that's the one bit you contribute to your salvation. That's why it's by grace, is that God has kind of done 99.999% of the work and you've done just the remainder. But Paul would say, no, not even that. 
In fact, the illustration of salvation is this. You're alone, open water, no chance of, of survival. The chopper comes out, rescue worker is winched down, puts out their hand, and you say, I'm all right, I'm a pretty good swimmer, I think I've got it from here. And then God has to send his Holy Spirit into your heart so that you'll see the danger that you are in and extend your hand in faith that you might be rescued. That's the truth of the grace of the gospel. That's how deep grace has to go to save us in sin. But not only that, Paul says it goes even further. He writes to these Galatians, he says, it's not just that you started by grace, but now you keep yourself in the faith by your own works. Did you see what he said there? He said, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul says it's not, it's not just that God gives you one big deposit of grace at the start, and then he's like, all right, I've zeroed your account, I've set everything up for you perfectly, now just don't mess it up. Obey me now, and you'll be able to stay in salvation. That's what I would call Easter show salvation, which is like, imagine you get a free ticket to the Easter show, and you think, wow, I'm going to the Easter show for free. You're wrong, because you'll get there, and you'll find that the real money is in everything else that happens. You know, like watered-down lemonade, lemon drink is probably the best way, thing to describe it as. That's like 50 bucks right there. They have, like, they have like, you can take out a mortgage while you're in there just so you can pay for the stuff that's in the Easter show once you actually get there. And if it's the case that God saves by grace, but then from then on it's like, all right, now, now you keep yourself saved by doing good things, then it's of no value at all. It's not grace at all, is it? It's like a free ticket to the show, but you've got to pay anyway. It's no good if you've got no money. Now, Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No way. It's grace from beginning to middle to end. The way that you remain, if you are here and your faith is in Jesus, and you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it's because God, by His Holy Spirit, has held on to you, has empowered you to have faith in Christ, and will keep you till final salvation. It is grace from start to finish. Because the truth is, if it's the case that you start by grace, but then you keep yourself in by what you do, then there really can be no assurance, can there? Because if it's the fact that you have to keep yourself in the faith, well, what happens if you have a dip in the Christian life? And during that time, while you're kind of in a, in a season of wandering or whatever, you actually die and you're outside salvation at that time then it's the, it's the case that no matter how you've walked with God previously, if you walk away for a moment, that's it, you're done. You're finished. There is no assurance. But if it's the case that it's from grace from beginning to end, then it's to look back at your life and go, no, I know God has worked in my life, and I know he will continue to, and I trust in his grace to keep me and to save me. This is the assurance that you have in the gospel of grace that you don't have if it's by works. That's why Paul is writing to these Galatians saying, this teaching about doing works of the law is foolishness. Get it as far away from you as you can. This isn't another version of the gospel. It's something else entirely. Righteousness before God is either by faith or by works, and they are not compatible. They are mutually exclusive. He says it is not the gospel. That's why he starts the letter by saying, look, if, me, if even we or an angel from heaven proclaim to you a gospel other than the one you have heard, let him be eternally condemned. It's grace, grace, and grace. And so what do we do with this? One of the first things is, if you are here and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, 
Can I ask you just to consider grace again? One of the saddest things I think I've observed over my life walking with Jesus is when people have rejected the gospel having never actually experienced true grace, but actually having experienced some version of Christianity or some experience of religiousness that really wasn't an experience with true grace. I've explained it before in this way. I had a friend years ago who told me that he grew up hating mango, which for me was surprising because it's the king of all the fruits. How anyone could dislike it, I don't know, it's beyond me. It's a test of character, really. You can't trust a person who doesn't like mango, I'm sorry. But uh, what had happened was, when he was a teenager, someone was bringing around a, a, a platter of mango, he had some, he was like, that's gross, I never want to touch it again. About a decade later, he was again at a social event where someone was just being a little bit more forceful, like, come on, it's been a long time that you've been against Team Mango, just give it a try. And he tried it, and he actually liked it. He's like, I, I don't know what was wrong with me. Then fast forward a couple of years, someone brought around a plate of pawpaw, and he had some of that, and it was disgusting, and he realized what had happened, that his first experience had not been mango, it was pawpaw, and they are worlds apart. But the entire time, he'd ruled it out, because that, that had been his experience of it. I think many people have walked away from Jesus or ruled out the gospel, having felt like they've experienced grace, but it wasn't really. It was religion. It was do better. It was you're terrible. If you do enough stuff to clean up your life, God will eventually accept you or might accept you or is gracious enough to forgive you, but only if you keep a clean record from now on and have never experienced true grace. You might even be here in a part of a small group and been in a church community for a long time and not experienced grace. If following Christ has always felt like something heavy and a duty and a burden, these are not the characteristics of grace. It's true. The Spirit will convict us of sin. But it's also through an understanding of grace, of God's overwhelming kindness toward us in Jesus that it's refreshing for the soul, that a true encounter with grace is life-transforming. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't experienced grace, to dive deep into the gospel again. You can join us for Alpha this afternoon, or come and speak to one of the leaders here. We would love to open the scriptures with you, that you might experience true grace, if all you've experienced now is a false imitation. But if you are here, and a follower of Jesus, I reckon this teaching in Galatians addresses one of the biggest things for Christians who have been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time. And it's this. Most Christians, at some point, will look back at their early phase of following Jesus as almost the halcyon days. I remember when I used to get excited about Jesus and about church and about reading the Scriptures, and I used to be excited about how can I change and my life be transformed by Christ and all of this. But at some point, I remembered uh, one, it was a lecture at college I was at, said that uh, what tends to happen is if you, if you describe kind of like transformed life in Jesus like a mountain, people sort of get, at some point you get about halfway up and you just sort of pitch camp. You're like, I don't have any of the major destroy your life kind of sins around anymore, but I'm just going to pitch camp here and wait till Jesus gets back. And one of the biggest reasons for that, I think, is the subtle belief that we start by grace, but then we continue by works. That is, you've butted your head up against the same sin or issue, the same anger, lust, pride, whatever it is, and you tried to bust through by your own efforts and your own strength, and after a while of trying with that, you got tired, and then you're like, 
I just, I'm going to camp out here. I can't imagine that there is more grace for me to see more transformation in my life than where I am now. And so oftentimes, sadly, as Christians increase with their responsibilities and burdens, you just end up camping out. And if that's where you feel like you are, and you feel like you've just tried to, to bust through by trying harder and harder and relying more on yourself, then I want you to do this. I want you to be harder on yourself than ever. I want you to, be, <laughs> I want you to just double down. Or I want you to, if you've butted your head against the wall 10 times, do it 20 times, but harder. Of course not. We want to pray for you. That if all of us here, there is no one here who can say that you came to follow Christ by your own efforts, so who of us here is going to continue by anything but grace? And if you are here after 2, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years of following Christ, then praise God because that's the work of the Spirit in you. And so if you feel stuck or you feel just flat or feel like following Christ at the moment just feels like a duty, then we just want to pray for you. And so what we're going to do after the sermon is we're going to have a slightly longer time to praise God we're going to have some leaders up the back. So Jacob and Anne and Anna and Rob will be up there to pray for you. And you don't have to come up and say anything. You just go up to them and they're just going to pray for you for more grace upon your life. Because the truth is, none of us here were saved by our own efforts. It's grace and grace alone. From start to finish, middle, everything in between. And so if we're to experience more of His grace, it's going to be by His hand and His Spirit at work in our lives. So I'm going to pray now that he would do that. We're going to respond to his grace in a moment in worship. And after that, if you want to just trail out during that time and get prayer, we'll be up the back to pray for you. Let's pray together. Father, we just praise you that you are the God of grace, of mercy, of kindness, of true forgiveness. That there was nothing lacking in the work of Christ. That he fully and completely atoned for our sin. That He won for us full forgiveness, full righteousness. It is not that He did most of the work and we're now to complete it in our own strength. But that You have supplied us Your Spirit that we might have faith in Christ. And that we might continue in Christ. We thank You that You saved us. You regenerated our hearts by Your Spirit. You have justified us through Jesus. And You continue to sanctify us until the day You will bring us home. And Father, until then... May you awaken in us a passion and a love and a desire to serve one another and to honor Jesus. That we would have a love for Christ fueled by grace and not by works. And that through this we might see many transformed lives. Father, we thank you for this gospel truth. We pray that we would stand on it and never depart from it. And we thank you for your word in the book of Galatians. A reminder of the depths of grace to us in Christ Jesus. We pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.